Welcome back to the 117th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including how activists are dragging companies into ESG culture wars, how California is going to start charging higher for electricity if you make a little bit more money, and why you may have seen new tip prompts coming up all across the nation in places that you didn't necessarily see them before. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So, how much ESG, economic social governance, the new policies that are being put in place on Wall Street and in these company boards, how much is too much? Corporate boards, they're being forced to address more and more ESG issues, and it's really eating at their valuable time. Where does it end? Should it end? These are all questions that we need to ask moving forward, because you see the SEC stepping in and actually making it so that these shareholders' proposals can't be struck down by the board. So the government's stepping in and giving the impression that it wants this ESG stuff to stick around. And that's why I'm asking you if it's important. If it was just activists and shareholders doing exactly what they wanted, that's a different story. And I still wouldn't necessarily be okay with it. But once the government really endorses this practice, it's something that we need to discuss as a populace. Because do we want our government doing it? Yes, no, maybe. There's a deep discussion to be had there. If you have any thoughts, throw them down in the comment section. Let's jump to our first story. This one comes from the Wall Street Journal. Shareholder activists drag companies into U.S. culture wars. So if you don't know what ESG is, then I'm sorry, the daily debate is going to be pretty hard to answer. But very simply, it stands for economic social governance. There are three different areas that companies need to focus on in order to be more up to date. Make sure that they are focusing on environmental concerns, social concerns, and governance concerns within their company. And yes, those are very broad terms. They can mean a lot to many different people, which is why it's a really hotly talked about issue. Because some people on the right may say, yeah, governance is important. We want to make sure that we have people who don't group think that we have a diverse set of opinions that really force the company to push the envelope and think differently than in the past. And then left-wing people may say, yeah, we really want governance. We want to make sure that there's a diverse board that is representative of the population demographics of the United States. These words can mean different things to different people. So on its face, economic social governance can be a term that is a little bit misused. But the intention and how it was created was for a mechanism to influence and control how companies operate and the policies that they put into place. And you see a big push from BlackRock, which is Larry Fink's company. They are pushing ESG very, very heavily. And you see a lot of activists, as we're going to talk about here, really, really pushing for it. So let's go to this, this setup that really describes what's going on and how it's affecting these companies, or at least it starts to discuss it a little bit. Quote, a backlash against companies taking on issues ranging from climate change to abortion rights is helping to push shareholder proposals to record numbers this year. 
more advocacy groups are using these resolutions to try to inject their voice into the corporate agenda, questioning companies' adoptions of policies that some view as being overly political. One group, for example, put forward a resolution requesting that Eli Lilly report on the risk of supporting abortion. Last year, the drug maker expressed its opposition to Indiana's near-comprehensive abortion ban. Such proposals questioning companies' stances on social and environmental issues have come in record numbers, surging to 74 for annual meetings held before May 31st, up from 43 last year, according to data from ISS Corporate Solutions, a unit of proxy advisory firm ISS. So, the reason that these are so potent is because Shareholders, they don't even have to be in the room. They don't have to be directly talking to the boards. In this era where you can proxy vote, you can sit in San Francisco, and if the board meeting is 9 a.m. Eastern Coast time, then you can be ready at 4 a.m., sorry, 5 a.m. your time, sitting there and putting in your votes and trying to influence the board. So while this era of proxy voting has been beautiful, and it, you don't have to mail in anything. You can actively comment if there's a live session now. There's a lot of influence that shareholders can actually have, and that's very, very beautiful. And it really speaks to the innovation that has come out of Wall Street. But it also leaves room for activist groups to buy up one or two shares, especially with Robinhood and not having to use big brokers nowadays. You can buy up one or two shares and then put your proposal on the list. Now, there are thresholds for some companies, and I don't necessarily know where all of them are because they are different, but sometimes you have to have a certain amount of votes in order to put forth a proposal. But still, you can see that, like the author said here, they're trying to throw their political voice into the conversation and make these companies address these issues. And it may not sound bad on its face, and it may not be bad on its face, there are, of course, good reasons to push for different things, and everybody has their opinion. If you believe that the world is going to end in 20 years if we don't fix climate change, then you should be entitled, whether I agree with you or not, that the world's going to end. You should be entitled to at least voice your opinion, and if you own shares in a company, say, hey, I want to know what you're doing to address this. But as we see this push over and over and over again, and we see all these people in activist groups weaponizing this tool in order to force companies to do what they want, I think that is a little bit scarier. And also, even if they don't get these proposals through, it does end up wasting, or wasting is not the right word, using up some of the valuable time of these companies. Quote, companies are facing proposals from both sides of the political spectrum, dragging them into increasingly fractious conversations over environmental, social, and governance issues. In total, 682 shareholder proposals were filed for annual meetings being held through May 31st, according to ISS Corporate Solutions. This is becoming a focal point of our society as a whole, said Frank, John Frank, an ISS Corporate Solutions Manager Director and lead author of a paper on the topic scheduled to be published this week. As Republican politicians, including Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, continue to push back on ESG, conservative-leaning shareholders 
have put forward proposals questioning, for example, the prudence of corporate diversity policies and the feasibility of decarbonization. Business should focus on the bottom line, they say, end quote. And you can see how this is a tit for tat. If a environmental agency, environmental activist group puts forward a proposal saying, hey, you know, you need to focus on your carbon emissions. You need to start lowering those just a little bit over time. Then conservative groups are going to come back and say, whoa, 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 hold on. You realize that that's actually a huge part of their business. We actually need to focus on a study and have them do an internal review of decarbonization and how that may hurt them. You can see it's a tit for tat. And then all these proposals coming from every single activist group or anybody who has an opinion on it is going to waste the board's time because they have to genuinely consider it if it passes through proxy vote. And it's just so useless. And I'm going to be honest with you here. It's frustrating because as the end of the quote says, the bottom line is make money. If the company wants to make money and do it in a responsible way, that is great. And you can do that by influencing the leadership that makes it into the company. That doesn't mean that you have to constantly propose new internal debates, internal memos, internal investigations that have to be undertaken by these companies. You still have the power to vote on who's on the board. And in some cases, you have the ability to vote on who the executive is. Normally, that's taken over by the board. But if you really want the agenda that you want to be passed and to be put into place, maybe instead of wasting the board's time with all these proposals, put into place somebody who shares your values on the board. Use your vote in that way. And even then, I feel like that could be overly political sometimes, and it will still turn into a tit-for-tat where people are constantly nominating new people because they don't like the person the other side nominated. So the only real solution is to drop ESG, to allow these companies to focus on the bottom line, and if they feel that there is outside political pressure or outside activist pressure to focus on these issues, then they can. But weaponizing the shareholder voting proxy system, which is meant to actually allow shareholders to have a voice and to make sure that the board takes them seriously, it falls apart when activist groups and other political influence groups come in and start using it as a tool to beat the board over the head. They're going to stop taking it as seriously and they're going to not want to do any of these issues or worry about any of these proposals in a serious way. Imagine they have a serious proposal to change the dividend structure or something of this nature, and they've just become so used to getting proposals that are absolutely useless that they don't put in the time and effort needed, the proper amount of time and effort needed to evaluate what that dividend restructuring would look like. You can see how over time this is going to dissuade board members from taking these sort of proposals seriously if we just have activist groups from one side or the other using it as a weapon. And you know how I talked about it's a waste of time? Well, there is an interesting rule from the SEC that says they actually have to take all these ESG, or I take that back, all these extra proposals into account. They can't ignore them. They can't just outright strike them down or not pay attention to them if they don't have a certain amount of votes. They have to entertain them. 
Quote, in 2021, that Securities and Exchange Commission policy change that made it harder for companies to limit these proposals is helping drive their growth. Proxy season, a chance for shareholders to help shape corporate agendas, runs in the spring when most companies have their annual meetings. Although shareholder resolutions are generally non-binding and most don't pass, even a 30% vote in favor of an issue may often be viewed by proponents as a strong message that the company needs to take it seriously. Many boards try to avoid alienating customers and shareholders and thus tend to not take sides, advising that every proposal be voted down. In some cases, they negotiate with shareholders to withdraw proposals before a vote happens. By studying these proposals, they are eating up time of the board and exposes the companies to potentially unwelcome media attention, end quote. So while these people that are putting forward these proposals are probably saying, we're doing this for our cause, we believe that in our heart of hearts this is good, we want the company to follow through, they're eating up time of the board, they're not allowing the board members to put their resources to very serious issues and make sure that the company is focusing on the bottom line, and at the end of the day, the board is just pressuring a lot of them. We're not pressuring. That's probably bad wording. They are trying to get people to focus less on these proposals. And we'll see how it pans out going into the future. But you can see how these these proposals, these proxy votes that are not necessarily passing in really high margins that aren't binding anyway, are actually wasting the time of the board. And you may say, well, Alex, hold on. You just said they're non-binding. But just because they're non-binding doesn't mean that they're not going to focus on them. Because just because the proposals are non-binding and it gets, what, say it gets 40%, if the board doesn't implement it, even if it's non-binding, then the people who voted for it, they obviously have enough of a contingency, 40%, that's a lot, to possibly sway who can get elected to the board in the future or kick people off in the future. So even though it's non-binding... They still need to consider it because those people could kick off people from the board if they don't see them at least trying to take some action in their favor. All right, let's jump to our second article. This one comes from the Cato Institute. California tries charging for electricity based on income. So yeah, you heard that right. And as I described a little bit earlier, if you make more money, they are going to charge you more for electricity. And if you make less money, they will charge you less. Now, for some people who believe in equity rather than equality, maybe this makes some sort of sense, even though equity is supposed to be about the equal outcome. So I don't necessarily know if that's the case, but, you know, maybe you could spin it in an equity light. Maybe you could spin it in an equality light, even though I don't see a good way to do that either because equality would require that everybody's getting charged the same fee more or less of course businesses are less reliant on the state electricity because they could go make their own infrastructure in order to power their plants and things of that nature so that's why there is a little bit of flexibility there between the corporate rates and the personal house rates but you know when it comes to house owners normally i would say a really equal scheme a fair scheme would be to make everybody pay the same, right? Well, that is not what California wants to do. Quote, a 2022 state law introduced to the California Public Utility Commission 
to replace a flat monthly charge for the fixed costs of providing electricity will with an income graduated charge. Californians with very low incomes already receive a discount on their fixed charges under the existing California Alternative Rates for Energy Act, uh, sorry, program called CARE. But the new law requires at least three new levels. The state's major utilities have proposed income-based rate schedules to CPUC. For the most expensive utility, San Diego Gas and Electric, monthly fixed costs would vary from $24 for customers under the federal poverty line to $128 for users earning more than 650% of the FPL, or the federal poverty line, which in 2023 is $119,000 for a couple with no kids. So on an annual basis, upper-middle-class energy users will pay $1,248 more than those on the most modest incomes. Implementation of this scheme will raise both fairness and policy concerns. So here's what the article is really pointing out. This is not fair. Okay, no, you can't do this. You cannot make people pay more just because they have better jobs or they're working a little bit harder, they're putting in more hours. Doesn't mean you can pay them, make them pay more for their utilities at their house. These essential things that they are going to need in order to possibly do their job at home, maybe raise their kids, maybe just enjoy life and relax and de-stress after a hard day's work. And that is a fair point. I think there is a counter-argument that doesn't necessarily hold up but could be put forward, and there is some rationale behind it, which is we want, if you look at what has allowed populations to grow and to for people to become more productive, the rate of energy consumption is a huge factor. Now, is that on an individual level? No, it's more looked at on a national level. When the U.S. started using the steam engine, electricity became more widely available than the evolution of petrol or fossil fuel technologies. All of these energy sources allowed for the people to become more productive, for us to find new ways to stay up later, power things, and we saw a boom in the U.S. population, the productivity, so on and so forth. So maybe an argument could be made on the individual level that people that are less well-off, well, if they pay a little bit less money for their electricity, they may be willing to use a little bit more electricity and therefore could spend a little bit more time you know, becoming an entrepreneur instead of having to focus on certain activities in a public place where they would you know, charge your laptop, use their Wi-Fi. They may be more willing to use their house as a base of operations. They'll be more willing to use their electricity in a productive way. They might be willing to keep the lights on a little bit longer to stay up a little bit later. I know that's a very rudimentary extraction, and some people may not understand what I mean by that, but if electricity is cheaper for these people that are less well-off, they may be willing to use more, and they could use it in a productive way. And then, from there, they can go up the rungs a little bit. They can maybe reach above the federal poverty line and start paying a little bit more. But now, even if they're paying a little bit more for their electricity, they're more productive with the electricity they have. Therefore, they're making more money to pay for that little bit higher fee. 
Now, of course, this is a big extrapolation, and that's why I think it does fall apart. It requires a lot of things to come into place, but maybe that is part of the thinking behind it. And also, I think there's the second part of it, which is not necessarily devious, but you've seen that California is having electricity issues. It's actually having to buy a lot of its energy from neighboring states. So maybe this is a way to curb the high end and tell people who use a lot of electricity, the rich people or people who are well off probably use a lot more electricity because they have fancier gadgets, they have more gadgets, they may be willing to have more kids because they make more money, therefore more suck on the energy system. Maybe this is a way for the state to discourage them from using so much electricity that they wouldn't necessarily need because they're paying a really high, high rate. Maybe that's also part of it. So how is this scheme supposed to work? Because obviously I've talked about, oh, well, this could be why they want to implement it. It's not necessarily fair. Let's actually discuss a little bit more of the granular of how it's going to work. Quote, the income graduated charge is an attempt to offset the consequences of previous state policies that have made electricity expensive in the Golden State. As the accompanying chart shows, retail electricity prices are far higher in California than those in larger states and in neighboring far western states. Rates per kilowatt hour in the California are double those of Texas, Arizona, Nevada, Ohio, and Oregon. So that's from the western region chart. And states are receiving many immigrants from the Golden State. One contributor to the high cost electricity costs in California is the utility user tax levied on 156 cities in four counties across the state. This tax, which affects about half of the state's population, averages around 4 to 5%, but can reach 10% in some extreme cases, such as the Bay Area city of Richmond, which is relatively large share of minority and low-income residents. And what they also point out here is They don't just compare it to the western states. They also compare it to the large population states. And their rate is probably about, you know, two, I believe two dollars. Yes, it is two dollars higher than New York and about three dollars higher than Florida. So they are not doing so well. And you can see that there's a real failure or at least there's a reason given that there is a failure of their system. And that's why they have to put in such a scheme that is going to take money away from its more wealthy individuals. And, you know, if you failed in the past and you're trying to make up for it and you put forward a new proposal that will actually help the people overall, then I could really be for this. But it feels like they are just digging their hole a little bit deeper and they're just saying, you know what, we we need to fix the situation, but we're not going to put a fee equally across the entire state. No, 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 no. We're going to be worried about the social implementations. We're not going to charge everybody equally. We are going to expect the more rich people to pay their fair share and also the share of people who are a little bit less fortunate. And maybe some Californians who are well off are willing to do that. You live in California. Maybe you have a different value system than I do. But I feel like this is not going to help the flight that they have had of more well-off individuals who have left California very recently, which means they're going to have less wealthy people to pay the difference and pay for those lower rates for the low-income individuals, which may actually exacerbate this problem more. We will see. That's my prediction. I don't know for sure, 
But if I was living in California and if I was blessed enough to be making over $119,000 in a couple as a member of a couple with no kids, I would not stay personally. But I am not blessed enough to live that way. And maybe it's because I'm selfish and ambitious and money hungry as a youngin that I don't understand when I would actually get to that point. I would look down and say, you know, I've made my way and I want to pay for that other guy down the street who's not working his butt off and living off the state. Yeah, I want to pay for his electricity. Maybe that's a mentality that I would have when I make that much money. I highly doubt it. And maybe that's the mentality that some Californians have. That's on them. They can live in whatever state they want, and we'll see how it works out. All right, let's jump to our last article. This one also comes from the Wall Street Journal. Why tipping prompts are suddenly everywhere. So to be honest, I hadn't really noticed this phenomenon too much. I'm in the Shenandoah Valley currently, so I don't necessarily see a whole lot of companies doing this. The only place that I noticed that started doing it was Subway. And in the past, you of course, they have their tip jar out front. But whenever you pay with a credit card now, they say, oh, do you want to give a 10%, 15%, 20%? And then in order to give no tip, you have to click a special option at the bottom, no tip. And I was kind of taken aback. I was like, wait, hold on, what? I, 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 have to, I have to tip now on top? And of course, you don't have to, but it does make you feel as though you should when it's a prompt that you actually have to click through in order to not give the person that was just servicing you a tip. And like I said, I haven't really run into this anywhere else, but apparently it's a really growing phenomenon across the country. So let's jump to a the opening paragraph from this article. Quote, a range of business owners adding the option for gratuity to transactions say these non-traditional tips help them stay afloat in a competitive job market. Moreover, they say the revenue generated from gratuity can help them avoid raising prices further. Consumers appear to be skeptical about the paying for now. Will Fisker took the same road trip from Salt Lake City home, his home, to Lake New, Spring Lake, New Jersey, two years in a row. While he didn't notice tip prompts at gas stations and mini-marts last winter, he saw them in about a dozen places he popped into for power bars and chips this time around. He just wanted an energy drink, not a whole moral crisis, says Fisher, who does underwriting for a financial tech company. He says he feels guilty saying no when cashiers are watching, so he tacks on an extra dollar about half of the time, end quote. And that is one part about it. You do feel that when the option is there, when it is clearly on the screen, it's actually brought to your attention that it's an issue. In the past, if you had a little bit of extra change and you don't want spare change, you throw it in the tip jar, no big deal. And you're not, maybe some people do it because, oh, yeah, yeah I, I want to feel moral. I want that person to know that I care about them. Other people are just like, oh, no, I don't want the change. I'll throw it in here. And some people just don't even think about it. They just put in a tip because maybe they've been in the situation of that cashier before. But when it came to electronic, different electronic transactions, people don't necessarily think about it. They can kind of ignore it. It's not put in front of their face, so why worry about it? But now it's being put in front of their face, and they're like, oh, wait, hold on. What do I do? Because if I'm paying for this with a card, it's not like, oh, I can say, oh, I don't have any extra cash, or I want to keep my change, or you could have necessarily a good reason for it besides you're tight on funds, but you're paying with a credit card, and what's an extra 50 cents? 
So, you know, there is a bit of a moral crisis, especially when people are watching. That's the dangerous part because you, or not the dangerous part, the part that is really intimidating to some people because they see that young 17-year-old who might be going off to college, might be trying to raise money for their college fund, and they see you looking at them with those eyes, and you're just like, you know what, yeah, yeah, I feel bad. I'm going to give you that dollar. Or you walk away, don't give them anything. You purposely click no tip, or you click custom tip and put in zero, 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 and then maybe they don't actually look disappointed, maybe they don't care, but you kind of project that look onto their face like, oh, okay, you're one of those guys. So, you know, there is this kind of weird battle internally when it comes to these sort of things. But let's talk about the business perspective because they mentioned in here that there some companies are doing this so that they don't necessarily have to raise prices. Quote, Liz Vidaya owns Baltimore Plants store B. Willow, says the tipping option she added to transactions during the pandemic generates about $1,000 every two weeks. Five employees split the money. She acknowledges the requests aren't perfect. Quote, it makes me feel uncomfortable as a business owner to know people are like, why doesn't she just pay them more? It's not that simple, Vidaya says. Ultimately, she says retain staff, retaining staff is more important than the possibility of annoying some customers, and the tip prompt does annoy customers. Rachel Waxman, a postdoctoral researcher in Baltimore, says she refuses to pay the extra $20 on a $100 fiddle-leaf fiddle fig when she visits B. Willows a few times a year, end quote. So you can see that companies, they are really pressed. They are really tight on money right now. And they're saying, okay, it's honestly more, I know it's inconvenient to the customer. I know it's uncomfortable, but I would rather have that uncomfortability and then throw in a little bit of extra money so I can retain my staff rather than have to increase prices or possibly lay off somebody. And that's a very morally justifiable instance. And I think that there's a, an argument to be made there. But also, don't be mad when customers are stingy and say, no, no, we're not, we're not paying for this tip. Even if I haven't paid for it in the past, that's not my reasoning. It's that you have a service. If you want the price to be a certain thing, if you want to be able to pay your employees, then include that fee in your product so I can know whether or not it is worth my time to buy. If you have to add an extra $20 to the price and that discourages me from buying it, that means that I don't think your product is good enough in order to deserve that extra $20 rather than having it be a moral crisis or a little bit of a manipulative way to get that extra $20 out of you as a tip because then you feel it goes directly to the workers. And I know that may sound a little bit weird, but when you remove the, if you're expecting the tip to make up for the cost of the product, that's when it becomes an issue because that means that your product is not good enough necessarily, not always, but it could mean that your product is not good enough to require that extra tip money normally and you're aware of that. So then you're saying, okay, we'll charge a little bit lower rate on the product, even though it's substandard to some people, but then we'll kind of hit them with a one-two punch with the tip in order to offset some of the losses that may be coming in. I don't know. That, that's maybe more of a Machiavellian way of looking at it, but it does pose a danger. 
And the thing is, I think at this point we're trying, companies are trying to normalize this. They're trying to make it so that there is a tip function basically everywhere across society. Normally you just saw it in restaurants. Now you're seeing it pop up everywhere. And then people use the justification, oh, well, it was COVID. It was hard times. Now you're seeing it being normalized in everything. And consumers are either going to have to push back really hard and become a little bit more ruthless and say, no, I'm not paying for this and you're not going to guilt me into doing it by watching me while I'm filling out the transaction. Or we're just going to have an economy that is basically everything, there's gratuity involved, everything we include tips. We'll see how it pans out. I know I've said that about two things today. Oh, we'll see how it pans out. But it was just something interesting that I wanted to talk about, the moral qualms, the effect on businesses. And I thought, if you haven't seen this yet, then maybe you would want to know that it's coming your way probably here pretty soon. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Block Club Chicago. Meet the adorable Fox family living in Millennial Park. So the people of Chicago, they have some new neighbors, and they're red and furry, and they're really mischievous. Quote, in the past few months, people have celebrated piping povers at the beaches and chunky snapping turtles along the Chicago River. Now the foxes are making their home in Millennial Park and joining the ranks of Chicago's animal celebrities, end quote. But it's not just the family itself. It's really the two little ones that are extremely cute. Quote, Deary has watched the adorable baby foxes known as kits wrestle in the garden and play with food as their parents hunt for rabbits, birds, rodents, and plants. I know where they all hide during the day, but I can't say, Deary said, everybody loves the babies, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of these foxes and the little ones playing, or you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below, the like and subscribe button where you can find it all. Also down there are the links to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, as well as the Twitter handle at your daily flip, where I post a link to the YouTube video directly on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And we are up on Rumble. The back catalog is coming in slowly, but the new videos all seem to be getting posted there within the same day of the video going up. So if you want to check it out there, go ahead. And with everything said, all the promotions done, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.